What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Putka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell's going on? We're releasing this podcast a day late for those of you who are waiting with bated breath on Wednesday because we were waiting for the oral arguments in the Dobbs case, the Mississippi abortion law case that was heard in the Supreme Court, and we wanted to bring you a great analysis of that. And we do that today because we have John Yu, who's a professor of law at uh, Berkeley and was a clerk for Justice Thomas. So who has been inside the chambers with Justice Thomas, knows how the court works. And of course, Justice Thomas is going to be the key vote here and uh, could, in fact, be the person writing the decision, depending on how the justices break up. So we thought we would wait for him and get his analysis. And as expected, it was outstanding. It was, and we'll play it for you. I think this is really interesting. This is the first time in you know, almost three decades now that the Supreme Court has taken up an abortion case that has the potential, at least, to either markedly change or even potentially overturn two landmark Supreme Court decisions, Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Which they waited because they wanted to wait until they had a snowball's chance in hell of actually prevailing. <laughs> and they now do. <laughs> Obviously, the makeup of the Supreme Court has changed. Now, the arguments took place today, and uh, and John listened to them, Mark listened to them, I read about them. What most news reports are suggesting is that the justices brought a, a good deal of skepticism to the critics of the Mississippi law. And while there was obviously an ardent defense, both of Roe v. Wade and of the theoretical principles and rights enshrined in it by the liberal wing of the court, the general tone was one of sort of, hmm, how does this make sense? I mean, Mark, what do you think is going to happen? Well, first of all, I listened to the oral arguments. I mean, the justices didn't make any substantive arguments to defend Roe. They didn't make any substantive arguments to defend Casey. The liberal justices, they basically said stare decisis, stare decisis, stare decisis. And oh, by the way, the integrity of the court is in question and we could lose credibility with the American people if we overturn Roe v. Wade. The latter is not an argument that should have anything to do with the decision-making of the Supreme Court. The job of a Supreme Court justice, as Justice Roberts said in his confirmation hearing, is not to be a player on the field, but to call balls and strikes. And uh, since he became the chief justice, he's all of a sudden thought that maybe I'll throw out a glove. He's really really been into his (laughs) role as first baseman. Exactly. (laughs) Or in some cases, the pitcher. But, you know, so so that just should have absolutely nothing to do with what what the Supreme Court justice does. If you're a justice of the Supreme Court, you're supposed to be completely apolitical. You obviously have a judicial philosophy, and you should be deciding the law on the basis of whether a case is rightly decided or wrongly decided, and what the law says and the Constitution says. And the left wing of block of the court didn't even make an argument on that basis at all. So 
we talk with John about the legal precedents. Neither Mark nor I are lawyers, although you know we both play one on TV on occasion. But well, we bring in a real one to tell us. Yeah, so we brought exactly <laughs> when, when when the when the bucks are down, we have to, we bring in a real one. But what I want to talk to you about, Mark, is the politics, because that's something we didn't really get into that much mm-hmm. with John, and I think that's going to be hugely important. Yep. So last weekend on Meet the Press, we actually got into a little debate about whether this would be a galvanizing issue for Democrats. And in the course of researching the conversation that we were going to have beforehand, I discovered things, and you know, this isn't my issue. I, you know, I can tell you anything you want to know about the Middle East, but I don't really pay a lot of attention to social and cultural policy and certainly and by the not way, we to abortion. Tell, we should tell listeners that this is an issue on which you and I disagree. disagree. Right. I'm pro-life. You're pro-choice, but with restrictions. Well, I think most people, most normal people, not activists. <laughs> Unlike me. Well, no, 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 no. I think most people who are pro-choice are pro-choice with restrictions. You know, there are activists who take extreme positions because, you know, in activism, that's what you do. But in any case. But what was fascinating to me is the divide in the American body politic, not between people who are pro-choice and pro-life, but between people who believe at about 61, 62% was the last survey that abortion should be allowed in the first trimester. 60 plus percent is a solid majority, I would say. But fascinatingly, 65% of people believe that it shouldn't be allowed after 20 weeks. You go back and poll after poll after poll shows exactly these outcomes. In other words, Americans in general, support what people call the pro-choice position, which is the right to abortion up to 20 weeks or whatever it happens to be, and don't support it afterwards. Now, I also learned another remarkable fact that I hadn't realized, which is that we are only one of seven countries in the world that allows abortion after 20 weeks. Two of the others are North Korea and China. Yeah, well, I mean, my God. (laughs) Good company to be in. And that actually came up in the oral arguments today. It did. In what sense? I can't remember which justice brought it up, but pointed out that is that the company we want to be keeping. And again, you know, I don't want our Supreme Court to decide whether we want to keep company with China and North Korea. I think that's a a job for the president and the Congress because I actually do believe in the separation of powers. But it is very interesting that what is presented to us very often as a broad consensus, women believe, Americans believe, is actually a much, much more nuanced issue than I think many people are aware of. There was a poll I saw that showed that 60 percent of people don't want to overturn Roe v. Wade. But also, as you point out, they also want to ban abortion after the first trimester. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of confusion out there about what overturning Roe v. Wade would be. It's been painted as this all or nothing kind of decision by its supporters on the left. All Roe v. Wade would do is if we, if the court ruled to overturn it would be to throw it back to the states to decide and to our political system to decide. And so if you're if you're uh, live in New York, uh, New York state, guess what? You're going to have the right to abortion up until the moment of birth if you want to have it, because that's what the people of New York the kind of people that they elect. And if you live in Mississippi or Alabama or some other more conservative states, you're going to have almost no access to abortion. And then the other states, it's going to be somewhere in between. And there's going to be a political argument over this. It's going to be put back into the political ecosystem. And I actually think that you asked the question, but but let's look at this through just the political prism, not the substantive prism. I'm also looking forward to talking about the substance. But politically, the left hasn't had to actually defend abortion for 50 years in the political sphere because it's been decided by the court. All they had to do was defend Roe, right? right? They don't actually have to defend the idea, okay, well, when we get down to the substance of it and the state legislature is going to consider a ban, 
You know, the Go state back. of Mississippi uh, says that we're going to ban abortion uh, after 15 weeks. Another state might make it earlier than that. Another state might make it uh, at the point of fetal pain. There's going to be all these debates going on. And what you find is that when you get to defending abortion, particularly in the later stages, it's not a pretty argument because you're going to have to defend some really horrific practices, particularly in the second trimester and certainly in the third trimester. And so I don't think it's a winning argument for Democrats going forward once they have to adjudicate it in the political sphere. And then second, if the court does overturn Roe v. Wade, that is a major, major political victory for the pro-life movement that's been decades in the making. This is a moment that they have been building up to for a long time. And victory begets victory in politics. And this is, again, going to be a Democrat versus Republican thing for the most part, although I know there are lots of pro-life Democrats and lots of pro-choice Republicans, but just generally broad swath. Don't forget, the Democrats aren't going to be going out saying, you know, oh, you can certainly yank a baby out of a woman any time. That should be a right. They're going to talk about women and they're going to talk about a woman's right to choose. They're going to talk about a woman's sovereignty over her own body. They're going to talk about all of those sorts of things, which you may not agree with. I don't think the argument is going to play out exactly as you described. I mean, and let me just say, it, one thing I think will be very interesting is that where the Republican Party lost a lot of ground under Donald Trump was with suburban women. Mm -hmm. This is an issue where I think suburban women will actually go the other way. I think a lot of suburban women are pro-choice. And yeah, maybe they are okay with you know, only the first trimester, but that's not how this debate is going to be painted. This is going to be painted about taking away women's rights versus allowing women to have rights. Yeah. I think it's going to be a lot uglier than than. So number uh, than one, I think when it comes to abortion, most people who vote because of abortion as their primary issue wash each other out. I think there are people who on the left who this is their number one issue and they vote on it and that's it. And there are people on the right, this is their number one issue and they vote that way. And then the rest vote on other issues and have opinions. But this is not their number one issue when they go into the voting booth. For the people for whom it is the number one issue, they are going to be super energized to vote Republican because they just want a major issue. And those who for whom it is a number one issue, they're going to be somewhat demoralized by having lost this. And then when the issue is not going to be an issue necessarily for Congress, it's going to be an issue for the state legislatures. That's true. And, and the state legislatures are now going to decide these issues, though I'm sure Democrats will come up with all sorts of laws to try and codify Roe v. Wade and Republicans will come up to. with all that. But it's going to be an issue in the state legislatures. And so the state legislatures, if they're smart, are going to start picking off things that are very uncomfortable for uh, people on the left. OK, let's just ban late-term abortions. Defend it. And you've seen in some of like in the Virginia state legislature, there's a woman who a member of the legislature who testified. Yeah, I mean, even after birth, that's not going to look good. Mark, by the way, is not kidding about <laughs> I'm that. not. A, a, low, a low point in Virginia you know, politics. So it'll be interesting how it affects politics. But the point is, it'll be and shifting back to substance. It'll be put where it belongs, which is in the democratic process. The Constitution is silent on the question of abortion. There's no right to abortion in the Constitution. So therefore, it's something that should be regulated by the states properly through the democratic process. And the will of the people will decide what the abortion laws are in each state. And that's exactly as it should be. So here's my prediction number two about the politics of this. The whole discussion about the Supreme Court is going to be revitalized. Mm -hmm. The one that we talked about last year a good deal and that we were very worried about, the whole question of court packing, yep. which Joe Manchin, God bless his soul, put paid to. Pro-life. 
<laughs> that's not why I'm blessing his soul. I no. just but Joe Manchin is the sole person standing in between the Democratic Party and increasing the size of the Supreme Court. And this is the discussion and the a little bit. Twenty twenty two. Right. And I think this will be very interesting is that one of the things that is going to 100% come back is the desire to drown, if you will, these six conservative justices in a larger court with a whole series of appointees from President Biden. I suspect it won't go anywhere, but I do think that that will be corrosive to the court. That would be corrosive to the court if they tried to do that. Court packing is very unpopular, but uh, I don't think the Democrats care about that because they're all about outcomes. And uh, I promise you that if Hillary Clinton had won and appointed three Supreme Court justices, there would be no calls for any kind of reform of the Supreme Court today. They just lost an election and don't like the results. And by the way, as disgusted as I was by January 6th, but God bless Donald Trump for appointing three spectacular conservative justices, because if we get this outcome, I'm a pro-life person. I want to see Roe v. Wade overturn. It will be because of the Trump justices and the fact that we now have a 6-3 majority, which means that Robert's court is no more. It is now the Thomas court. And I love the idea of the Thomas court. So (laughs) let's get to our interview. Most people who listen to this podcast regularly will remember John Yu. He's a colleague of ours at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley. He's a prolific author, prolific uh, law journal writer, prolific op-ed writer, and just an all-around awesome guy, although... Maybe not the best joke teller, (laughs) but judge for yourself. I like his jokes. Get ready for the comedy stylings of John Yu. (laughs) So, John, welcome back to the podcast. You're becoming a regular guest. Oh, it's my great, great objective. My strategic goal is to bump Tyson aside and do a hostile takeover. (laughs) On the podcast. Because I don't get the curse on my podcasts. Yeah, you Are know, we? Mark, that sounds like a really good idea. Excellent. We're going to start with not a leading question, because I think there's a lot Stop of... leading the witness, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of foundational knowledge that's important before we discuss uh, what's going on at the Supreme Court on the question of abortion. And that is, okay, what are they arguing today? What's happening here is Mississippi passed a law in 2018 And it basically prohibited all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That's a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade, which was decided in 1973, almost 50 years ago. And then this other case called Casey versus Planned Parenthood of Pennsylvania, which was decided in 1992. Those are the two cases that have identified a right to abortion. The line the Supreme Court drew was that a woman's right to an abortion has to basically be free from state regulation up until the point of viability, the point where the fetus can live on its own, that's generally 22 or 23 weeks based on modern medical technology. So the case today is really, is the Supreme Court going to overturn Roe or in some way modify it? But if it's going to say the Mississippi law is okay, it's going to have to toss out this viability framework. So a lot of observers think with the three Trump appointments to the Supreme Court, joining the three Bush appointments to the Supreme Court, that Roe's days are numbered, that this is the opportunity for that conservative supermajority of six justices to overturn Roe. One of the really interesting things from today's oral arguments, I I don't know if you listened to them, I hope you didn't listen to all of them because they can get really quite boring, but one of the interesting things about this arguments today is that nobody really defended Roe as being correct. 
No one defended there was a right to an abortion in the Constitution. Roe's defenders mostly argued, don't overturn our past precedents. The law has to have some stability to it. The Supreme Court will look political if it overturns Roe. The law has to be a constant, and we shouldn't just be changing our minds all the time, which is really the strongest argument these days for keeping Roe. So there's so much to unpack there, but let me just ask you straight up first. And the polls show that something like 60% of Americans don't want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. And I think that most Americans think that if you overturn Roe v. Wade, all of a sudden it would ban abortion. Could you tell us if the court did decide to overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey, what would happen? What Roe did for the first time was to say abortion, which up until that point had been regulated by the states, like a lot of life and death issues, but death penalty regulated by the state, euthanasia regulated by the states. A lot of the most fundamental questions in our lives are regulated by the states because there's nothing in the Constitution about it. So Roe, for the first time, said there is actually a fundamental constitutional right to a woman's right to an abortion, which states cannot interfere with, despite its ability to regulate medicine and all these other areas. So if Roe is overturned by this court, and you will get a decision by end of June in the summer, All it does is it just returns the question back to the states. There's this misperception that it's up to the Supreme Court whether abortion thumbs up or thumbs down. All getting rid of Roe means is that the states take the question back. And so you can have states like my state of California, state of New York, I'm sure. I'm sure a state of Maryland where you guys are, D.C. where you guys are, will basically pass laws to keep the right to abortion somewhat like it is today. And then there are going to be some states like Mississippi, for example, that may prohibit abortion altogether. But the important thing is the court is returning the question back to democracy. And it's not going to be up to five justices anymore whether and how abortion is regulated. Kavanaugh said today that the question is, should the Supreme Court be neutral on the question of abortion? And I think that sort of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know how other people are reading it, but when I was listening to the arguments, I think that's the actual big headline news. It's not been in the papers as I've seen it, but the headline news to me is Kavanaugh finally revealed his hand because he's probably the controlling vote on whether Roe is going to survive. If you count up the votes, you know, you've got three liberal justices. They were defending Roe, you know, stare decisis. In fact, two of them basically gave speeches during the oral arguments, didn't really ask anybody any questions. I think you've got three really conservative justices, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, who are going to vote to overturn Roe. I think Amy Coney Barrett, she didn't really ask much, but as a professor, she wrote articles and she said things which are fairly critical of Roe. That means Kavanaugh, I think, is really the fifth vote. He's never decided an abortion case, really never decided as a lower court judge any issue in this area, and had never written or said anything about Roe. Today, he said an oral argument the Constitution is, isn't it neutral as to abortion? It's neither yes or no. And if it's neutral about abortion, then the Supreme Court has no business and should withdraw from the area and return it to the political process. In fact, he made the point that we're all making. He said, well, that means California and Alabama and New York will all have different abortion laws. But he said, that's the way it is on a lot of issues. So this all comes back to this question of Roe. And I don't think this is an argument so much, interestingly, about abortion. It's an argument about what the Supreme Court should be up to in the lives of Americans. So tell me, I know why liberals like Roe. 
because it basically grants a right. And they I like think they use right because they like the outcome because it grants a right. And we underscore here not the word abortion, but the word right to abortion, which cannot be infringed by the states or by laws. But conservatives don't like it. And it's not just because conservatives tend to be pro-life and not pro-choice. It's also because they don't like the Supreme Court meddling in this space. Can you just sort of expand on that a little bit? Because I think it's really important. That's a great point, Danny, because Roe, you could see it as like the high watermark of the Warren Burger Courts, which was this period of the Supreme Court being quite activist in changing a lot of the rules that our society functions under, but without any sort of democratic input. So it wasn't just, as you pointed out, it was just symbolic of this bigger question. What is the proper role of the Supreme Court on social and economic questions? And so what happened with Rose, that it was the culmination of that attitude that the Supreme Court should step in, establish more minimum rules for what the government could do, what individual rights meant, and getting somewhat far afield what was actually in the constitutional text. And so the counter to that really came about starting in the Reagan years. And this is why Bork and Scalia, you know, our colleague at AI, Robert Bork, and then Justice Scalia, who also was an AI colleague, actually, were so important because they made the argument, I'm not arguing whether Roe is a good idea or abortion is a good idea or a bad idea, but it's not the right judicial role. The people decide. Have political fights in the states. Go to Congress. That's what the Constitution sets up for most policy issues. And as you say, Danny, this issue of judicial power is the one that really focused the mind in the Reagan years and in the first Bush years and second Bush years with this argument, appoint judges who are going to pull us back from this activist role for the Supreme Court and return us just to reading the bare constitutional text and its original understanding and let politics have bigger scope than what we're used to. Let's deconstruct a little bit some of the arguments that came from the liberal bloc of the court. So they made their argument, as you say, not on the basis of that the Constitution has a right to abortion in it, but on the basis of stare decisis, which is the idea that the court should have deference to previous Supreme Court decisions. So, I mean, would they have argued for stare decisis in the case of Dred Scott, which said that uh, a black person could not be a U.S. citizen? Would they have supported stare decisis in Plessy v. Ferguson, which upheld the Jim Crow laws of the South, or Korematsu, which allowed uh, the internment of Japanese citizens. How does stare decisis work, and why are they selectively in favor of it? Stare decisis essentially always makes you defend decisions you know to be wrong, because if they weren't wrong, you wouldn't need stare decisis. (laughs) We were right, and we continue to be right. So stare decisis has this feature to it, which is you know what we did before was wrong, but there are other reasons not to overturn it. And so it's always this kind of second order weak argument because it's almost like saying, I don't want to argue on the merits. I don't want to argue based on the original question. I'm just trying to make this institutional claim. It's like a, it's a process argument. And so as you all know, process arguments are never made by either side in a principled way. <laughs> just right. And, and that is not, that is not the sole purview of the left. That is the, so, that, exactly. so, so, so do too. <laughs> Oh, so this, so on, so this argument that uh, Breyer was making, Sotomayor was making, Justice Kagan was making, it was this claim that even if Roe was wrong, got to stick to it. Now, conservatives on the court, especially Gorsuch and Thomas in particular, their view has been if the first decision was wrong, 
the Supreme Court isn't bound by it because if we're wrong, if the justices are wrong, we are really the only people who can change it. Congress can't overrule us and a constitutional amendment is so hard to enact that it's up to us to fix our errors and our mistakes. And so there's this wing of the conservative part of the courts, just like we don't care about. So, and they use the exact cases. And in fact, it's interesting, Justice Kavanaugh today, when he was saying we should be neutral, why should we defer to Roe? He listed all those cases that Mark just mentioned. Brown versus Board of Education overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. Miranda overturned an earlier decision. A lot of the great liberal decisions, actually, right? They're there because they overturned earlier decisions. So, I mean, my personal view is always, I, I think I have a lot of sympathy for that wing of the court that just says, why should stare decisis even exist at the Supreme Court? Your job as a judge, a federal judge, is to just get the best meaning out of the constitutional text that the founders wrote and ratified as best you can, and then let politicians figure out what you're going to do outside those decisions. The other process argument that the liberal justices were making was that the court's legitimacy is at stake, that this is a political decision and that uh, there'll be more calls for, they didn't get into this, but the obvious follow-up is that there'll be more calls for Supreme Court reform and the less public support for the court. I mean, should that have anything to do with how the court decides questions of law and constitutional law? The reason I mention that is because actually that is the grounds of Casey. So Casey, which was in 1992, was another period where Reagan and Bush, just like Trump and Bush, had appointed the majority of justices to the Supreme Court. And the case came up from Pennsylvania calling for a road to be overturned. And to the shock of many, and totally unpredictable from the oral arguments, Justices Souter, who's Bush appointee, and Kennedy and O'Connor, who are Reagan appointees, joined with the remaining liberal justices, and they said, we're going to uphold Roe. We were shocked. In fact, Chief Justice Rehnquist had written what he thought was going to be the majority opinion overturning Roe in draft, we now know. And these three justices said they gave the exact rationale that Justice Breyer is trying out, and which you mentioned, Mark. They said, we can't overturn Roe, because if we did, it would be seen as being the result of a political pressure campaign, again, on us by the pro-life movement. And so we're going to resist the temptation to overturn Roe in the hopes that we will be seen as a neutral. Now, you know, Mark said, let's deconstruct that argument. The problem is, if you believe that, then no matter what you do as a response to the political pressure, it's just, you know, you could be saying, well, we're also responding to the political pressure from the pro-choice side to defend Roe. So I've always thought, that was a terrible moment in Supreme Court history when the court said openly, we are deciding this because of the way people are putting pressure, political pressure on the court. The merits, that's not, you know, has anything to do with what does the Constitution say? What did the framers think it meant? Would they have included a woman's right to abortion when they created individual rights? You bring up Casey, and I think everybody is familiar with Roe v. Wade. You talk about the fact that Casey came up from Pennsylvania, and you actually wrote an article about it, and I vowed to myself I was going to include this quote in Casey, which I want you to actually explain, because I think it brings up this issue of viability, which is one of the Solomonic options that may be before us in this court decision. But in Kennedy's decision that he wrote in Casey, he wrote, quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, 
of the universe and of the mystery of <laughs> of human life. Now, if I had read that in that wacky transcendental meditation book, I would have said, okay, that's great. Thanks. Thanks, dude. But this is a Supreme Court justice writing something that is such obvious claptrap. And I say that, by the way, as someone who has a much different opinion, I suspect, well, I know, than Mark, on these issues. Nonetheless, you want decisions to be solid. So talk a little bit about Casey and the viability issue. Yes. So actually, I think, Danny, probably I share the same policy view. I've, I've said before that if abortion were returned to the states and I vote on it as a voter, I'd probably vote to allow some level of abortion. But I just don't think it's up to the Supreme Court to decide. It's up to all of us as voters to decide. That's really what overturning Roe would do. Casey, so that passage you read, it's got to be one of the most mocked passages in recent Supreme Court history. In fact, Justice Scalia, I think he either gave a speech or wrote a dissent where he called it the sweet mysteries of life passage. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem with it is that's not in the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you have an individual right to explore the sweet mysteries of life free from government regulation. What, the, what does that mean? Where does it mean? Where did it come from? And think about it, if that were actually a constitutional right, it would be limitless. <laughs> what is it that the state would be allowed to regulate? Would not a lot of our criminal laws have to be tossed out if you said, oh, to explore the sweet mysteries of life, I must have access to your wallet <laughs> or I must have access to the goods in your car, right? Actually, that does seem to be going on here in San Francisco. I was about to say. Exactly. <laughs> it sounds like California is the sweet mystery state. John, just can you explain what the actual case was about? Oh, yeah, sure. So Casey was a series of limitations on abortion that came out of Pennsylvania. And people forget, you know, Pennsylvania, you know, my home state actually used to be quite a strong pro-life state. Like, Bob Casey, the father, Senator Casey, he was a governor. He was a pro-life Democrat. and he Wasn't allowed to speak at the Democratic convention because of it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yep. I mean, he was just so boring anyway, so that was a good call. But <laughs> these laws out of Pennsylvania, they put a lot of restrictions on abortion. You know, and actually, the court upheld most of them, most of these restrictions. But they did say, you know, any of these restrictions that interfere with this right to abortion had to be struck down. Now, what's interesting, and I think this is what your point is getting to, is that the Casey decision changed the framework for what was legitimate regulation of abortion, what wasn't. So under Roe, this was a decision by Justice Blackman, it adopted this weird trimester system because that was sort of consistent with the medical technology of the time. And it basically said, in the first trimester, a woman's right to abortion was essentially unlimited. In the second trimester, it was a balance. And then said the third trimester, which was seen to be viability, the state could actually prohibit abortions because it had an interest in protecting the life of the fetus. So Casey, I think recognizing medical technology had changed, tossed that all out and it replaced it just with, there's no trimester system anymore. All they said is it's viability. And they basically said before viability, the state cannot place, the test is called an undue burden on a woman's right to an abortion. Whatever that said, means. After viability, the state has this greater power to regulate. That's basically the law we've been operating under for the last 30 years. That framework is what the court has used to strike down a wide number of abortion regulations from the states that have tried to chip away at the right to abortion. 
So that sets me up perfectly for the next question because I'm going to make this overly simplistic, but tell me if this is right. There seem to be basically three options here for what the court could do. One would be the Kagan, Sotomayor, uh, Breyer option, which would be to upheld Roe and Casey and declare the Mississippi laws unconstitutional. The second option would be, you could call the Thomas option, which would be to overturn Roe v. Wade and throw it back to the states. And the third option would be the Roberts option, which is to (laughs) find some sort of middle way to not overturn Casey, but to uphold the law because he knows that his majority is not going to overturn the law. So he's got to find some middle way. But as you pointed out, Casey stands on viability. And scientifically, we know that viability is somewhere between 25 and 20 weeks, and the Mississippi law is 15 weeks. So how do you square that circle and uphold Casey, not overturn Casey and Roe v. Wade, but also find a way to uphold the Mississippi law? Is there a way out of that box for Roberts? Yeah, I can give you what Roberts tried, but the interesting thing is there didn't appear to be any takers. You said he was pretty sneaky uh, today. He's such a sneaky guy. (laughs) That's the only way you can get to be chief justice anyway. I mean, let's be frank. So you can see those two camps, right? The uphold Roe strike down this Mississippi law, not even hard. If the court were going to apply existing law as it is now, you can't escape striking down this law. This law is just flatly inconsistent with Roe and Casey on purpose. That's why Mississippi did it. If you went with the Thomas route, you would just say, let's just put a Roe and Casey aside, decide this question afresh. There's no right to abortion in the constitutional text, not mentioned. When the Constitution's ratified, when the 14th Amendment's ratified, which is the real provision at work here, there were plenty of states that had abortion laws. Nobody said or would have thought at the time that abortion was touched by the 14th Amendment one way or the other. So what Roberts tried to do today in oral arguments, he said, well, he said, yeah, yeah, viability, 23, 24 weeks. And then he just said, basically, why not 15? What's wrong with 15? Let's just try 15. It's like, what's such a big deal about... 16 versus 15, right? So it was very, he had no, the funny thing was, I, I don't know, he just sort of reminded me of George Costanza from Seinfeld. I don't know why it was when I heard him talking, he's like, yeah, why not 15? Let's try 14. Why not 16? He basically said, there's nothing magic in how many weeks it is. So he basically said, why couldn't we just say, is the state being reasonable here? And so he said, well, 15 weeks gives a pregnant woman a reasonable amount of time to get an abortion if she wants to. That's his try. And what he did, he threw it out there, hoping that other justices, you know, in the oral argument might say, oh, that's not a bad idea. What do you think of that? And so on. But it was crickets. What's interesting to me, actually, was that none of the liberal justices, you know, if you were latched on to that, I think they were going to go down all guns blazing, defending Roe. But if they thought they had a chance, they might have clustered around this reasonable idea that Roberts is throwing out there. The other thing I'll note about the reasonable thing that Roberts is trying is that would just make the court's problem with Danny's point about the judicial role in life. If abortion regulations are just constitutional or unconstitutional based on whether they're quote unquote reasonable, then the Supreme Court's going to have to decide every single time some state passes some new restriction on abortion and that these powers can grow and grow even more. So my exit question here, and there's just so much to talk about. The history is fascinating, and the deliberations are fascinating, and the constitutional role is fascinating. Let me just ask you quickly about something that I think actually has nothing to do with 
abortion at all, but which is being conflated with the Mississippi law right now. And that is Texas's law that gives a right of action to any private individual to sue abortion providers if they are performing abortions. To me, honestly speaking, this is an unbelievably dangerous idea because, I mean, who cares whether it's abortion? Why shouldn't it be gun rights? Why shouldn't it be education? Why shouldn't it be anything? But nonetheless, people, because it gives a right of action on questions of abortions, this has been conflated. Talk for a moment about that. I totally agree with you, Danny. You're quite right about it. If you took the word out, abortion, and replaced any other individual right for it, you would see immediately that this is just an effort by states to avoid the Constitution by pretending, oh, it's not the state that's enforcing a law, which is what the Constitution discusses. It's just private people doing things to each other. And that's something the Constitution generally does not address. I always draw this parallel quite explicitly, but this is exactly what the segregationist South did after Brown versus Board of Education. They did this in a number of areas. What they tried to do is, well, Brown says a state cannot discriminate on the basis of race and schools and so on. Well, we'll just hand all the schools over to private people, which is something they tried to do. Or we'll just close every public school. They did that in Virginia. Yeah, there'll be no more public swimming pools. We're handing them over to private people. And the court back then said, this is so obviously an effort to just get around the Constitution by pretending you're dumping the functions of government off. You're handing them off to private people. Because it is true, you know, Mark can be as mean as he wants to you and me. The Constitution doesn't stop him. Yeah, I feel it should. But if it's the government doing it. Let's talk about that. (laughs) I know there ought to be a law. Shut up, Daddy. (laughs) (laughs) But when the state is mean to you, right, then this is problem called the state action. The Constitution only addresses state action. It doesn't address what private people do to each other. So the Texas law, as you say, Danny, Think about if that was about speech or guns or anything else, we would all see as an obvious unconstitutional end around. But because it's about abortion, it gets, as you said, it got swept up in all of the attention and controversy over this Mississippi law. And you notice the court heard oral arguments and they still haven't issued a decision in the case. They might just be holding on to it until they decide what they're going to do with this Mississippi Dobbs case. Well, the Texas law was just a way to get around Roe. But if the Dobbs case and Mississippi case, you know, ends up overturning Roe, then it's irrelevant, right? Yeah, although the Texas case uh, would push the ban on abortion passed, I think it goes past 15 weeks much earlier because it's, a, as they say, a fetal heartbeat, I yeah. think. So they would still have to decide the issue. Yeah, I think a lot of people would then say, eh, go ahead, strike down the Texas law. We don't care anymore because Dobbs is the real victory the pro-life movement is looking for. So I've got two exit questions because Danny wrapped up sooner than I did. First, talk a little bit about the dynamics in the Supreme Court and how it's going to play out here. Because for conservatives like me, one of the great things about Amy Coney Barrett's joining the court, other than the fact that she's a great justice, is it's no longer the Roberts court, right? There are enough conservatives now that it's really in many ways the Thomas court because he's the senior justice. And if Roberts doesn't want to join the conservatives on a particular uh, decision and he joins the liberal bloc, well, then he still loses and Thomas gets to write the decision. How is this going to play in this particular case, the fact that you have a 6-3 majority instead of a 5-4 majority, and how is it going to affect Roberts's efforts to uh, circumnavigate a way to avoid overturning Roe v. Wade? 
That's going to be the story, not just this case, but the court for the next few years on not just this case, but not just abortion, but on the gun case, on the religion cases, voting rights, Harvard affirmative action case. That's going to be the story that's going to play out the whole way is you only have three liberals. So the argument is really about the six conservatives amongst themselves about what to do. You know, I do a number of these conferences and panels at law schools and with colleagues about the Supreme Court. And it's so interesting to me, for the first time in my memory, we don't talk about liberal theories of the Constitution anymore. It was great. It was so refreshing. <laughs> for now, all we do is we talk about the different flavors of conservative arguments, because that's all that really matters now is, you know, is Robert's style, incrementalism, moderation going to prevail vis-a-vis Thomas's originalism? Let's just go back to the, you know, let's just go back to the videotape and not care about all the things that came in between. And so here, what I think the dynamic is, as you say, let's look at those six, because that's the dynamic that's of interest. Roberts's vote doesn't matter. If you're Thomas, you want to have a clear, bright line that gives five clear votes that distinguishes everybody against Roberts, that rejects his kind of, why not 15 weeks? Why not reasonableness? If you're Roberts, and this is, I think, what he's doing today. I think he's going to do this. He's doing this Second Amendment case. I think he's going to do it in the Harvard Affirmative Action case. He's going to be saying, please, please, Brett Kavanaugh, what do you want? <laughs> you know, what right. can I do? <laughs> right? What can I do, Brett, to get you to, you know, I'm going to wrap my arms around you. You tell me, what can we do together? Because whenever Roberts can convince any one of those five justices to break off and join him, the three liberals, you know, that's fine with them. They'll live with whatever they can get. And so Roberts, I think, it's interesting that in today's arguments, Roberts is pitching, stare decisis is important. We shouldn't overturn Roe. What if we just changed the test but still left intact a reduced right to abortion? Kavanaugh today didn't seem to want any of that. He said, no, the Constitution is neutral. Why should we pay deference to past decisions that are wrong? Let's just get out of this business of judging every abortion law in the country. That's why I think that was really surprising because a lot of people – Maybe it's just wishful thinking by all the liberals I'm surrounded by all the time. Their thinking was, oh, Roberts is going to persuade Kavanaugh to be in the middle of the court, to be more moderate, which would preserve Roberts's power, give him that fifth vote he so badly needs. So I think, interestingly, this is not just an important case about abortion. This goes again to Danny's point about judicial power. It's not just important about abortion. This is going to give us a real signal, I think, about how far this court is going to go for the next five or ten years. And my final question is, because you clerked for Justice Thomas, and it seems to be an emerging Thomas court, he used to never ask questions during oral arguments, and now he was the first one. There's a big article in the Washington Post about this is his big moment. Tell us about his judicial philosophy. Tell us about what a Thomas court will look like, not just on this issue, but on other issues facing the country. Yeah, as you say, Mark, you've revealed the inner secret that I did clerk for Justice Thomas. <laughs> You're one of the kids, right? Yeah. In fact, I yeah, I had this extraordinary experience because uh, there was a 30th anniversary, you know, celebration of his time on the court. He only did one, so he had there were these seven, uh, symposia panels which were on C-SPAN, and then Senator McConnell gave a speech about the court, which was you know really nice. And then there was a private dinner, and people had to give toasts. So people say, oh, wonderful things. Yeah, you know, I usually fall asleep during these kinds of things, but then the organizers. They said, John, we want you to give a toast, and you have to go last. 
and we don't want you to say nice things. We want you to roast Justice Thomas, <laughs> which is really, really intimidating. So I'll, I'll tell you, I started out with this joke, which fell flat. I think it fell flat. I said, also Larry Silberman, who I clerked for, who won the first Justice Thomas Award, was also in the audience. So I was given the instructions. <laughs> you have to roast both of them simultaneously with like – Senator McConnell sitting there. I was like, oh my God, thanks a lot, guys. So, you know, the whole day I was in trepidation. I couldn't do anything. So I was just thinking up jokes. So this is the joke I started out with is, you know, the way to understand the difference between Justice Thomas and Larry Silberman is they remind you of different comedians. Justice Thomas is the David Chappelle of the Supreme Court. He's the guy who says, why is it like this? Why can't it be some other way? And then I said, Larry Silberman is the Don Rickles of the Supreme Court because uh, of the courts, because Larry Silberman, he just shows up and he's bald and that makes everybody laugh. (laughs) 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 So then out of the audience, Justice Thomas, he has this deep, booming voice. He goes, who the hell is David Chappelle? (laughs) (laughs) He clearly doesn't have Netflix. (laughs) You're there so first and nowhere else. But that like, gives you a flavor of Justice Thomas. He's one of these guys who loves to yell out stuff. So this is the thing. A lot of people thought, you know, when Justice Thomas wouldn't ask questions at oral argument, as you noted, Mark, and now all of a sudden he's very active. They took that as a sign in his early career. Oh, he's just a Scalia clone there. I mean, people said most ridiculous. I remember reading those articles. Orders. Yeah, in the Washington Post, I believe, Mark. Yeah, oh, he's, he takes his orders from Scalia. And actually what... You know, Thomas, what was going on is that he just wasn't comfortable getting into this kind of brawl that has become oral argument where justices cut each other off, yell at each other, cut off the counsel and so on. And so COVID ironically brought out the Justice Thomas that I've known and that you see behind the scenes if you look at the court papers and so on. It's that he's you know, not only is he deeply thoughtful, he's quite radical. He's someone who really entertains Big thoughts about changing, Danny's question, the role of the court in our lives, the way to interpret the Constitution, how to decide these basic fundamental questions. And so under COVID, the court adopted this new rule because they couldn't see each other. They were doing it by phone, basically. For the first time, they had to have an order where each justice got to ask questions in a certain order, and they did it by order of seniority. So Thomas got to go first, you know, after the chief justice. So for the first time, people saw what Thomas was really like through the oral arguments. And again, he's somebody who doesn't believe in stare decisis. He would decide everything fresh. He's probably the justice who is most attached to the idea of bringing back the Declaration of Independence and natural rights to the center of our constitutional jurisprudence, and also is very hostile to expertise, to claims of defer to the administrative state, defer to the technocracy, I, I think people are kind of blown away by how radical Justice Thomas's direction would be if he, you know, if he can assemble those five votes we were just talking about. Do you think he's going to do it? What's your prediction? Gosh. <laughs> so, you know, this you, you might be shocked to hear this, but when I clerked for Justice Thomas, I was accused of being the moderate in the chambers. Oh, my gosh. I was like, <laughs> should also scare you. (laughs) So, you know, I would say, you know, the founders think this justice, I agree. It says, you know, we're at point B, the framers are at point A. And my basic view would be like, yes, we should get back to point A, but we should take our time and do it slowly. And uh, the justice was like, no, 
<laughs> he was like, you know, we're going to do it right away. He always says, we're going to watch me, buddy. <laughs> That's his very rude phrase, buddy. So he, I think he's got several fellow travelers there. I think Alito and Gorsuch are definitely of that same kind of temperament and mind. They are like, let's just get the answer, the right answer. And we're not going to defer to the past Supreme Courts. Why should we? Our job is just to get it right. I think Amy Coney Barrett is closer to that based on what she wrote as a law professor, but she still pays some attention to stare decisis. So I think it's really going to be up to Kavanaugh, whether you can see a conservative version of the Warren Court in a way, but it'll be the Thomas Court, certainly not the Roberts Court. That's awesome, John. On that fascinating note, John, thank you so much. As usual, you've done a wonderful job both explaining and analyzing. It's so great to have you on. Thank you. And we got your comedy stylings, too. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, I I like John Yu's humor. (laughs) I think he's a great joke. I wish I I had been there. You know that Larry Silberman married me and Steven, so I love Larry Silberman. And he is bald. I'll say that. Federalist name dropper. Yes. Yes, I am. But (laughs) touche. I wish I'd been there to see that. That would have been hilarious. Poor John. Let's talk about where this goes. I think that the Thomas Court is going to prevail. I think that there's going to be a clean overturning of Roe v. Wade. As John said, I think it's all a discussion among the six conservative justices. I think Brett Kavanaugh, I mean, I don't know how how Brett's going to rule. I know Brett Kavanaugh. I worked with him in the Bush White House. I think he's a staunch conservative. I think he's got the courage of his convictions. And I think that he's going to do the right thing. And I think this is a tipping point for the Supreme Court, not in the way the left sees it, but within the conservative bloc. Is this still the Roberts court or is this the Thomas court? This is the deciding moment. I think just watching Justice Roberts today, trying to find some split way the baby. to split the baby, you know, King so Solomon, speak. right? Yeah, literally, you know, the pretense of, of being the Solomon who, who, you know, will preserve the integrity of the court and have an incremental outcome and all the rest of it. I stand with Justice Thomas. If it's wrong, if Roe and Casey were wrongly decided and no one on the, on the liberal block of the court said otherwise, they didn't make that argument. If they're wrongly decided, then they should go. And, you know, the, the, all the stare decisis, I'm sorry, would you support the stare decisis when it came to Dred Scott? Which is no, the, obviously, the, the, obviously, would, no, no, no. Would you would you support it in Plessy v. Ferguson, which was which I, when the court upheld uh, Jim Crow laws? Would you support it in Korematsu when it upheld the internment of Japanese Americans? When the Supreme Court makes a wrong decision, then it's up to the future justices of the Supreme Court to right that wrong, because as John pointed out, no one else can. Congress can't. The president can. No one else can. It's up to the court to fix its errors. And Roe v. Wade is an error of historic proportions. I'll put on my pro-life hat here for a moment because we've had- <laughs> Did you ever gonna, take it off? Well, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it on and, and make a point. Since Roe v. Wade was decided, 62 million unborn children have been killed in abortions in this country, 62 million. That makes Stalin's purges and, and, the, and the Ukraine famine and, the, and Mao Zedong look like pikers in terms of the number of people that they killed. It is a stain on the soul of our country that we have allowed this kind of mass murder of unborn children to take place. I know you feel differently about I it. I hope that one day we look back on Roe Exactly the way we look at Dred Scott, exactly the way we look at Plessy v. Ferguson, exactly as the way we look at Korematsu is like, how did we ever allow this? 
And uh, I think we have a chance to have a turning point in history. Okay. Well, you know, I don't enjoy talking about abortion for a whole variety of reasons, and it is a highly emotional issue. But I know that you see all these unborn unborn uh, children and the lives that were stolen. I see children that are born into families that didn't want them. I see children that are born into broken homes. I see children born to drug addicts. I see children born to children. I see children who are products of rape or incest. And I think those things... Again, I think, who was it who said abortion should be legal and rare or something along those lines? That represents how I feel about it. I don't think it's about a woman's right to choose. I think it's... A, legal, a, rare, and limited to the first... Legal, uh, rare, and, and limited. That is what I believe, and I don't think it's quite the slam dunk that you do. Why do I think that this is important? And I'm sad that the debate will end up being solely about abortion and not about the proper role of the court. The proper role of the court has been corrupted over decades, and it's not just on abortion issues. It's on a whole variety of issues. It's on questions relating to what rights we have. It's on questions relating to Obamacare, where decisions were made that weren't jurisprudential. Individual mandate attacks. I didn't elect these guys. I don't want them to be making these political decisions. Exactly right. And I will say something else. There will be a day in our future when the balance of the court has changed and when it will be in the hands of liberal justices. And just as I accept decisions I don't like out of the court that is dominated by conservatives, I will accept decisions that I don't like in a court that will be dominated by liberals because that's how our system works. But here's where I disagree with you, Danny, is that there's a difference between the liberal bloc and the conservative bloc. John talked about the Casey decision where Reinquist was about to write the decision overturning Roe v. Wade and then three of the Republican justices defected to the other side. When does that ever happen the other way? What major case has ever happened where a liberal justice has come over and sided with the conservatives on something that was important to the left? It never happens. And the reason is, and you saw it in the arguments today, is because they're all about outcomes. It's judicial activism. The conservatives do defect, have defected over the years because sometimes they will rule on things that they pers- their personal preference is not the final outcome because that's what the Constitution and the laws say. They're willing to accept what you just said. That, that, that some, the, and in fact, I think it was Justice Gorsuch, I can't remember if it was Justice Gorsuch or Justice Kavanaugh, who said it in his hearing that sometimes the job of a justice is to rule what the law says, even if, you do, if it's not your personal preference, even if you don't like the outcome. The left never does that. The left yeah, judge, but, but, and so when you get, if they pack this court with a, with a, whether it's whether it's through elections or whether it's whether it's through court packing, when we if we get a liberal majority, they are not going to be deferential to the Constitution. They're going to be there. It's outcome based. I don't care. I don't. I don't care. I don't, care. I, I, I don't like outcome based. I don't like outcome decisions, but I don't want the right to become the left. I think I agree. Well, but when it does, you know, when when we see when we see Trumps on the left, when we see AOCs on the right. I can't stand it. I think it demeans us as small-D Democrats, and it demeans our country. No AOCs, and there are no no Trumps on this court. There are no AOCs, and there are no Trumps on this court. It's true. They are just fantastic. We We are blessed to have six fantastic conservative justices who put the Constitution first, and they will decide on the basis of what the Constitution and the laws require. In this case, it's just absolutely clear because the justices on the left didn't even argue it on the basis of the Constitution and the law. They just said stare decisis and the reputation of the court. They didn't even try to make a, co- a constitutional argument for it. The law is clear. There will be other cases co- where, where those justices will rule against what conservatives want 
because that's what the law requires too, and I trust them to do that. That's the difference between the left and the right, Danny. All right. Mark got the last word that time. Thank you. <clears throat> Finally. Well, I suppose he Every needed to at while. some point. Every once in a while. Yes. Even a blind hog finds an acorn oh. once in a while. Take care, everybody. <laughs> Take care. And listen and subscribe. <laughs> if you want more of this. <laughs> listen and subscribe and rate us. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.